Well, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 2. We'll look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to You in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, Your Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that You would, by Your Spirit, open our hearts, that we might receive the truth. We pray that we would hear the Gospel um, clearly as it comes to us through Your Word. And we pray above all things that You would be honored and glorified. And we ask it in In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever, and the people of God say, Amen. Well, this is more directed to young people, but really it helps us all. Why do you go to school? Uh, Let me guess. You go because you love it. In fact, you love it so much that you wish there were no breaks like summer or Christmas. In fact, you wish you could go all year without interruption and you wish that they would have classes on Saturday too. Am I right? No. You go to school and it's hard work. But you go because you're seeking something. You have a dream. You hope in something. So you go to grade school and you do the best you can because you want to do good in high school. And you want to do well in high school because you want to go to a college of your choice. And you want to go to a college of your choice because, well, you want to get the kind of career that you you want. What you have to understand is that you're living into the future. Did you know that? Um... What does it mean to be... What is the present? What's the present? What's right now? Well, it's already past for me. As soon as I said right now, that was past. Your life in the present is really... You're, you're moving from the past to the future, and the present is some point on that line. And that's all it is. And it's a very brief, quick point. You're living for something that you don't have. Something that you... Do not see. Well, that's what we're living for too. Something we don't see. And that's what hope is. For who hopes what he sees? You can't hope in what you see. Paul tells us that. So, I intend to do an Advent series... Many Presbyterian Reformed churches do not focus on Advent. Uh, They believe that something is being imposed on them. However, nothing is being imposed. Rather, something is being both remembered and anticipated. I mean, listen to the words of Harry Reeder, a pastor in the PCA. He writes, and I quote, Pastorally, while not being enslaved or conscience-bound to observe a church calendar... So you see that we're not being something imposed. It's not not conscious bound, anything like that. He says, I would suggest that if we intentionally return to the historic emphasis of the Advent season, 
which intentionally celebrates the first advent while also anticipating the second advent. That is, we're, we're looking to Christ. We already, Christ has already come, first advent. We're looking for His second advent, His second coming. If we would do that, we could add a theological focus which would enhance our pastoral ministries of both celebration slash worship and discipleship slash equipping, end quote. Now, we don't notice this too much in Scripture, so it's probably a good idea for us to just think for a moment. Um, Here's a passage from Paul, and he mentions both the first and the second advent. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, a passage we're all familiar with. He writes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more as more significant than yourself. Let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross, first advent. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Second Advent. Now we don't ever notice that, do we? We never think in those terms, but that's exactly... Well, you see that, oh, you'll see this again in Scripture. First Advent, Second Advent. Why? Because the first advent of Christ uh, is um, He's the first fruits. And we're looking forward to the final harvest when all the people of God will join together. And so we can't separate them. We can't separate Christ's first coming and His death, burial, resurrection, and ascension into heaven from His second coming because we're looking forward to this. So we're looking in the past... We're remembering the past. We're anticipating the future. Right now, that's what we're doing. God's Word to Isaiah gives us a glimpse of the future. That's what we're looking at this morning. The focus is the consummation of the kingdom of God. That is, on Christ's second coming or His second advent and the consummation of the kingdom of God. Now, why do we start there? That's a good question. Because the Jewish people at this point, or at the time, they're not at the time Isaiah wrote, but in prophecy, Isaiah is telling them, you're going to go into captivity into Babylon. And so once that happened, they were always looking forward to the time when they would be released and all things would be made right and, uh, and, and the kingdom of God would come. The problem was with the Israelites, the Jew, the Jews, their problem was they saw the end time, but they didn't see uh, the intermediate first advent, Isaiah 53, when the, when the servant of God suffers death for other people. See, they could see the end, the consummation of the kingdom, 
but they, for some reason, couldn't see the suffering servant. So we always have to look at the future consummation through the first advent. And that's what we'll do this morning, I hope. I want us to think about that future by considering three details from the passage we read in Isaiah. First, the revelation of God through Isaiah is the Word of God. I tell you that all the time. It's important. Second, the revelation of God concerns the latter days. And then third, the revelation of God calls for our response. So first of all then, let's look at the revelation of God through Isaiah that it is the Word of God. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It's kind of an odd way of saying it, the word that he saw. Um, uh, there are probably different ways to interpret it. You could all, it's, 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 in the, it's in the Scripture. That's why when I read that the Word became flesh, I immediately start thinking of passages like this, that Isaiah saw the Word of God. What did he see? You don't. I mean, unless God, you know, maybe God used a dry erase board. I don't know. You saw the word of God. Um, the word "see" can mean has a lot of different connotations. One of which is revelation. So you could say that what Isaiah got was a revelation from God. That doesn't explain the grammar of Isaiah too well, but it does help us interpret it. The grammar of Isaiah is best understood, in my opinion, as you think about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Word became flesh. Hebrews 1.1 God who at different uh, various times in diverse manners spoke to the fathers through the prophets has in these days spoken to us by His Son. Right? And so you make the connection. So it's the Word of the Lord. And why... Is that important for us to constantly remember? It's the word of the Lord. Its function in this passage is not just the word of the Lord. Let's think about the inspiration of Scripture. It's actually the the function of the word of the Lord here is to give hope to those who are in captivity. That's why it's there. The word of the Lord gives us hope because He tells us the end in view. He tells us what what we're, we're striving for. It's like Paul says, you know, forget what lies behind and, and reach for, strain in reaching for that high calling that we have in Christ. Why? Because we don't have it yet. It will be there one day, but we don't have it right now. It's that kind of an idea when God speaks and He tells us about the future, about, in this case, the Babylon, you know, the Jews being released from Babylon, but it's more than that. You see, because we were in captivity one time, we were in the captivity of sin. We were estranged from God. Paul says that, you know, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, He tells us in Ephesians 2, uh, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, uh, even while we were dead, raised us up to be uh, together to be with Christ in the heavenlies. We were by nature children of wrath and God erased all of that through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ that we might live. Do we have it all right now? No. We will one day. It's our hope. 
What we have right now is that we have fellowship with God. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, uh, then we don't stumble. Um, uh, if we if we if we continue in our faith, I know that that sounds like I'm saying, "Oh, it's all up to you." That's not true. Um, it's not all up to you. God's grace is what gives you the strength to get through. But you're looking for the future in light of the past. It's only because Christ came and suffered and died and was buried and raised and ascended into heaven. It's only because of that that we can look to the future where He's coming again. We live between the times. We live in the latter days. The church has always lived in the latter days. Why? Because we're living between the, res- the, the, the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. We're living between the first advent and the second advent. Amen. Well, we can think of things like a commander, right? Commander in the army or in Marines. What does he do? He gives his troops... He gives his troops uh, the end in view. Take the hill, right? And so the men are then sent out to take the hill. Do they have the hill? No, that's what they're going to take. And how do they get there? Well, they, uh, he leaves a lot of it up to them. They can make split-second decisions and all this because the goal in view is to take the hill. And you might have to do all kinds of different things to take it, but I want you to take the hill. That's what you're doing. See, and that's what God tells us. The consummation's coming. Are you awake to it? Are you paying attention to it? The second advent is on its way. Right? The Christ who came is the Christ who will return. So what should that do for us? Well, think about these things. Think of the sacrifices that many missionaries made. Okay, Don Richardson spoke in uh, our in my co- the college I went to. Uh, Don has a, uh, wrote a couple books. One of them called "The Peace Child." He was a missionary. He and his wife to uh, Erie and Jaya, what we we call Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea. Uh, he was a missionary to uh, those people uh, who you know they were they were headhunters and cannibals. He he went there. He and his wife. But on their way there, they had twin baby sons. Somehow or other, they got dropped into the river they were in, going up to the, where they were going to live. And the natives dove into the water, tried to find the babies. They never found them. Don Richardson and his wife didn't quit. They kept going. Wow. How do you do that? Well, what it is, it's true that it's God. That's true. But they have an end in view. The people they went to minister to in Erie and Jaya didn't, they were cannibals, for goodness sake. They were headhunters. You know, they liked to eat the meat behind the eyes or something like that. I mean, these people were, that's what they did. And they took pleasure. They, they thought lying was, lying was a good thing to do. You know, Judas was a hero to them. So they had to have a, their whole mentality uh, changed and transformed. Well, he went there to do that. He went there to give them the scriptures. Did it cost? Sure did. 
What about Adoniram Judson? He was a missionary to Burma. He was tested through 30 years of service. He lost two wives and seven of the 13 children that they had. And I'm quoting G.K. Beale here. He says, In the face of constant persecution and imprisonment, he not only finished a Burmese English dictionary and grammar, but also translated the entire New Testament into Burmese. After 10 years, he had one church of 18 believers. And uh, he died on a ship. Myanmar is what we know of. That's what Burma is, this Myanmar. And right now there's about 5 million Christians there. But when he went? 18. Did it cost him? Yes. A Christian life is one of self-sacrifice. Christians are to take up their cross and follow Jesus moment by moment. We give up too easily. We want comfort and peace. We want security and ease. We are much too willing to store up treasures on earth where moth and rust consume. But as Jesus teaches us, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's only as we keep the end in view that we will willingly sacrifice our lives for Christ. Are you willing? You know what? I ask myself this every day. Am I willing to sacrifice whatever it takes to get the gospel out into this community that I live in? Am I willing to make that sacrifice? Are you? G.K. Beale writes this, More than 3,000, I quote, More than 3,000 unreached and unengaged people groups remain today. There are in some of the heart they are in some of the hardest to reach places in the world and they total almost 250 million people. We must go. We must persevere even when we see little fruit. Even in Christian America, those with no religious affiliation are the fastest growing religious groups today, growing 28% between 2007 and 2012. Both unreached people groups and the increasingly resistant West will only be penetrated by the gospel with great sacrifice and cost. We don't have to go to you. We don't have to fly overseas to Africa. Africa's got more Christians than we do. They're more active too, and they're more. They're, we don't need to go to Africa. We don't need to go to the Middle East. I'm not saying you shouldn't go there. That we shouldn't want missionaries to go there. That's not the point. We're living in a mission field right here. Right here. We don't have many Muslims in this city, but we have we have Muslims and we have them represented at the University of New Mexico. They have a Muslim Islamic uh, training center there. That's a mission field. There are Chinese people at that university. We're, we're, where I live, we're in an Italian community, for goodness sake. Nobody in my neighborhood, that I, well, one lady across the street, I know she's a Christian, or at least she's a professing Christian. Well, nobody else. So am I willing to pay the price, whatever it takes, to take the gospel to resistant America?
I don't know. Pray for me. Pray for yourselves. We need to do that. The last days present to us an image that runs from Genesis to Revelation. You've got to understand this. I, I can't get into it right now. But the kingdom of God and its establishment doesn't begin when God has a covenant with Abraham. As a matter of fact, it begins in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. That's when the kingdom of God is established on earth. That's when it first comes to our attention. So it runs from Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing. It's as we see God's intention for creation. That was His intention for creation, revealed through the Old and New Testaments. Uh, That gives us an anchor for our hope. Paul writes this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Notice that, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. What are we waiting for? We're waiting for the second advent of Christ. And he says, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And again, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope And what is our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. That's our blessed hope. And that's what should inspire us. That's what should empower us to do what Christ commissioned the church to do. Make disciples of all nations. I want you to notice in those verses we read that there are two advents. The first advent is the grace of God bringing salvation. The second advent is the appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. You see that? keeps being repeated, doesn't it? First advent, second advent. And I told you, said, I mentioned that the Jews in the New Testament era, they missed that idea of a first and second advent. Anyway, so ask yourselves, in light of this is the Word of God, that comes to us in light of the hope that's been set before us, where is your treasure? Are you feeding moths and the elements? Or are you storing up lasting treasure? Hope, dear friends, is where the heart is. So first of all, God's word through Isaiah is meant to give us hope It's meant to challenge us. But secondly, it is a revelation of God that concerns the latter days. I want you to notice, as Isaiah writes, he says, it shall come to pass when, 
in the latter days. Now that phrase, in the latter days, occurs most often in Scripture to designate the final age. Um, just look at a couple of passages with me um, that, that that comes up. Look at Numbers chapter 24. Numbers chapter 24. Again, I believe that um, <clears throat> the prophet here is speaking of the Lord Jesus. Numbers chapter 24, verses 12 to 25. Um, if I have the right verses. Actually, it's verse 15. It's actually verse 15. Beginning in verse 15. This is Balaam's final oracle. He took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down uh, with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir and his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and one from Jacob shall arise, shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities." What is he talking about? He's talking about Christ. The imagery is just too clear. A scepter is going to rise out of Israel and he's going to exercise dominion. Dominion over what? Dominion over all the enemies of Israel, Moab and Edom. In other words, he's going to exercise dominion over the earth. That's the intention. We're dealing here in numbers and they're just looking at a few surrounding areas, but in the end, when you keep putting, go through the Scripture, you're going to find it's the dominion over the whole earth. When you get to Revelation, it's a dominion over the whole earth. And when you get to Revelation, the city of Jerusalem that comes from heaven, the whole earth, it, what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a new creation. It's Genesis 1, only now it's Genesis 1 fulfilled. Again, look with me at Daniel chapter 2. And we'll just look at a couple passages there. Daniel chapter 2, um, verses 24, or 44 and 45. Daniel chapter 2. You'll recognize the context. <clears throat> Um, the king had a dream, and um, Daniel is the one who interpreted it for him. And in verses 44 and following, we read, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, 
and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Well, Daniel's interpreting this dream that the, the king had, where he had a statue as a head of gold and all that, and you go down through, through the he describes all the different parts of, of the statue, and the, but the feet are mixed with clay and bronze, right? Well, then you have this image of this stone coming out of a mountain that was not cut by any human hands and it dashes to pieces this, this statue. Well, the statue is representative of earthly powers. And the, and the, and the stone that comes down, it's, it's the one that comes, it's Christ. But how does Christ, when we, as we go through the Scripture, how does Christ destroy the kingdoms of this world? Well, there's two ways that you can destroy the kingdoms of this world. One is by sheer force, by power. And that's what you see in every human leader that we have. Whether his name is Donald Trump or the Chinese guy, I can't think of his name, and the Korean guy, I can't, can't pronounce their names. But anyway, whoever it is, how do you, how do you, um, how do you um, take the kingdoms of this world? By force. Whether you do it economically or whether you do it <clears throat> militarily, <clears throat> you are taking the nations by force. Well, Christ is taking the nations another way. You see, force can never change a person's heart. You can beat someone over the head into submission to you, but his heart is still going to say, I'll get you. His heart is still going to say, like the little child who was spanked yes. by his father, right? Say, sit down. Sit down. Sit down. Kid wouldn't sit down, so the dad, I think dad spanks him and he sits him down. He said, now you sit down. And the child says, I'm sitting down, but inside I'm standing up. Yes. You can't change a heart through beatings or anything like that. How does Christ change the hearts of people who hate Him? Through the gospel. That's the only way that it changes. Through the gospel. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit that hearts are changed. That's what we read when that's why I loved going through the Heidelberg Catechism. Question number one. It tells us right at the end that the Holy He's given us His Holy Spirit who makes us holy, willing, and able to serve Him. It's the Spirit of God who changes our heart, who gives us a new heart that we're born again. And because of that, then we become the friends of God and not His enemies. Well, one day, um, there is going to be the kingdom set up by force because there's going to be a lake of fire and all that. But between then and now, or now and then, God changes people. He transforms them through the preaching of the Gospel. The latter days in Isaiah focuses our attention on the consummation of the kingdom that we just saw in Numbers and in Daniel. And the imagery of the mountain of the house of the Lord um, are images that are repeated in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. So as you go through the Scripture, you make these connections. Um, the mountain of the house of the Lord is going to be established. Um, it's, going to be one of the, it's going to be the highest mountain and it's going to be lifted up above the hills and what? All the nations shall flow to it. Yes. And many people shall come and they're going to say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the house of the Lord. 
to the house of the God of Jacob. Now, as we look at Isaiah and as we look through the Scripture, what you're going to see as you get to the end of the Scripture, uh, you're going to need to make a note. In John's eschatological vision, that is the end time vision of John, in the sequence of history, the movement is from the garden to the tabernacle slash temple to Christ. In John's vision, the picture pans from Christ to the tabernacle, temple, to the garden. And what does that indicate? Well, in God's progressive revelation in history, Christ is the consummation of the presence of God. Moreover, Christ is the all-comprehensive presence of God in the eschatological life of His bride. Who will we see when we see, when we see God? Jesus. We'll see Jesus. Because God reveals Himself in Christ. Well, why are people going up to the house of God? So we, they say that He may teach us His ways and that we may walk in His paths. People from every nation, kindred, and tongue desire to learn from the Lord and to live as He directs. Well, we're not seeing that today, are we? But that's the hope that's set before us. Why? Because Christ came and Christ is going to come again. Um, but we need to ask a question. Why the image of uh, going up to the mountain of the house of the Lord? What is it about the location that drives the prophet? Well, he tells us, Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between nations and he shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Uh, neither nation, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Well, we're talking about going up to the house, the mountain of God. It's the highest one. Why are people going up there? Well, they're going up there because they want to worship God. Now, they're not wanting to do that right now. The end in view is a time when all fighting and warfare cease. The consummation of the kingdom brings peace. Well, we live in a generation in which peace hangs in the balance, and it really does. The United States, China, North Korea, Hong Kong, the Middle East, these and more make disturbing statements. What will it take to plunge the world into a global war? I don't know, but I do know this. That God's plan is for good and not for evil, regardless of what the nations do. That doesn't mean we won't suffer. But just think about that. God has a plan, and He's bringing it to bear. Christianity, as the West experiences, may well come to an end, and it might. But the end, but then Christianity, as the West experiences it, is losing its self-identity. Christianity is losing its self-identity. It's becoming more and more like the world and less like her Savior. So what's going to happen? Well, I don't know. What I do know is that God promises a new heaven and a new earth one in which righteousness dwells, one in which God will be exalted through Christ, one in which there will be no war and all implements of war will be transformed into farming tools. Now, how do I know this? Well, I know this because this is the Word of God to Isaiah. It's the Word of God. So as you look out on our world with its turmoil, what is your hope? Is it in the president or any government leader? 
Is it in some new technology that will command the nations to be at peace? Is your hope that mankind will solve problems our world faces? Well, I have to tell you this. If you don't fix your hope in the promise of God in Christ, whatever hope you have will be dashed to the ground. So what are you hoping in? What are you looking forward to? Well, having that hope gives us uh, knowledge and it tells us then, or it asks the question, well, how do you respond? How do you respond to this promise of God? Well, that brings us to the third point, and that is the revelation of God calls for a response. O house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah 2, 1-5. Or actually, it's verse 5. Well, let us walk in the light of the Lord. But John says in 1 John, this is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Now let me just stop a moment. I want you to think about this. This is important. How do you walk in the light as God is in the light? Well, you can only walk in the light as God is in the light if your Savior is our Lord Jesus Christ. That Christ died for our sins on the cross isn't the end of the story. The Gospel is not just that Christ died for our sins. That's true that He died for our sins. But He was buried and He was raised and He ascended into heaven. All of that is part of the gospel that we believe. But when we walk in the light as we're in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with God. Why is fellowship with God so important? Because it was lost in the Garden of Eden. Right? What was lost when Adam and Eve sinned? They no longer walked with God. And walking with God is the image of having fellowship with him. And so how do we have fellowship with God now? We only have fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Him um, have everlasting life. Those who do not are condemned already. Amen. That's, what Paul, that's what John says. That's what Jesus said, as a matter of fact. So what does that mean for you? Well, are you trusting in Christ? Do you really believe the Gospel? Christ died for our sins. Do you believe that? Because if you say, yes, I believe that, then I can tell you that you have everlasting life. If you have faith in Christ, then I can tell you that God has given you eternal life. And your faith is an expression of, your, of that. Your faith in Christ is the outward expression of the fact that God has changed your heart. You don't rely on yourself anymore like you do. I'm, I'm going to go do good works. Why? Well, because I want to, you know, I want to balance out the scales. That's a lot of people have this. I want to balance out the scales, you know, do so much bad, do so much good and I balance out. Well, I'm going to tell you, I have to tell you this. The, the good that you do uh, does not compare to the, to the fact that you're, uh, that you're a sinner against God. The balance is like this. Right? Here's your good. There's. And you may say, "Well, wait a minute. I don't do. I don't do. I don't. I don't do bad things. I like people. Really? Do you hate anybody? 
Don't tell me no, because I'm going to just say, I don't believe that. You may not have, you know, kind of hate the child or kill him, but, you know, I really don't like that. I can't stand to be around that person. He's a jerk. You know, uh, you're not supposed to say raka. You're not supposed to say, you know, thou fool. Why? Because you'll be in danger of hellfire. Why? Well, because you're calling, you're putting someone down. You're judging them. You're, you you're, 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 um, well, you're just sinning. Why? Amen. You're condemning. You're condemning an image bearer of God. Amen. Amen. I mean, I get, I get, I, I, I'll tell you, I get angry. Okay, and uh, in my room by myself, I say things, and then I have to say, okay, that's that's a sin. I shouldn't have said that. You know, you know, I think of certain people in the White House, not in the White House, but in the Senate. I see their picture on the news, and I think, oh, like that. I say, wait, stop, hold on. God, God ordains them being there. Now, you may not like them. They may really make you angry. You may really feel like, you know, giving them a broken neck. But you know what? That's a sin. Do you ever feel that way? Well, I do. You know, I say, well, I, John, I really don't, I never really hate anybody that way. Well, okay. um, You know, God bless you. There's other things you've done. You know, have you, I mean, just think about it. As As you think about the Ten Commandments, always think about the opposite of them. For example, thou shalt not murder. Okay? Well, thou shalt not murder is a negative. The positive of that is that you'll love your neighbor. <laughs> what does it mean to love your neighbor? Well, just read the account of the parable of Jesus about the Samaritan and the guy that got beat up on the road to Jericho. You want to know what, you want to know what loving your neighbor is? That's what it looks like. Loving somebody you don't like and that doesn't like you. Well, that's hard. Yeah, I know it's hard. I just am trying to make a point here that if you're going to walk in the light as He is in the light, as God is in the light, you're going to have to do it as you are in Christ Jesus. You must put on Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. Trust in Him. So do you believe the Gospel? I pray you do. Also, we read Paul in Romans 13, verse 11 to 14. We read it this morning. Besides this, you know that you know the time uh, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than uh, when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Well, this is the first Sunday uh, the Lord's Day of Advent. And so what does Isaiah have to do with Advent and Christmas? Well, it's just this. Like Israel of old, we too anticipate the coming consummation of God's kingdom. We anticipate it. We're looking forward to it. And Advent is just that, a looking forward to, a thinking about things, a looking at yourself, doing self-examination, looking forward to that, that remembrance of the birth of our Lord Jesus. Israel and Judah lived prior to the first coming of the Savior. However, the coming of the Savior ushered in the last days. 
Christmas is not just about the birth of the Son of God incarnate. Christmas is about the advent of the Messiah. The advent has two points, his first coming and his second coming. We who live after the first advent of Christ now await, look forward to, hope in, his second advent. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in, also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then it is coming. Those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and of every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Right now! Right now! All things are in subjection under Christ's feet. And he's, he's subjecting his enemies and ours. So the only proper response to God's word regarding the consummation of the kingdom is worship and service. To walk in the light he has given us regarding the future of all things. So fix your hope on God's Word and don't be moved. We have seen that the revelation of God through Isaiah is the Word of God. Therefore, Christians have sacrificed all to take the message to the world in order to expand the kingdom of God. Second, we have seen that the revelation of God concerns the latter days. Specifically, it is the revela- it is this revelation calls for a response on our part. The final consummation and the reign of peace through Jesus Christ leads us then third to what we have what this revelation calls for as a response on our part. As we give thought to the Christmas season, remember it's not about trees and tinsel, as beautiful as these may be. It's not about giving and receiving presents, as enjoyable as that may be. It's definitely not about Black Friday sales for which some people have died. No, Christmas and the Advent season which precedes it are about Christ. They are about the first and second Advent of Christ. So this year, as you celebrate Christmas, turn your attention from the past to the future and place your hope in that final Advent when our blessed hope, the appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Turn your attention to that as you celebrate Advent. Harry Reader, a minister in the PCA, makes these concluding remarks regarding Advent season. I thought these are really appropriate to close. So, and I'm quoting, I quote, So, here is a pastoral recommendation. Start reclaiming the vibrancy of the Advent season from secularization by enhancing our commitment to the great commission of making disciples through emphasizing the inseparable dynamic relationship of both Advents of Christ. In a word, let's return to the historic objective uh, objective of using the Advent season to affirm both the victory of Christ in His first Advent and our longing for the consummation of His second victory in the second Advent. 
In so doing, we would not only minister to a heartfelt need in the lives of God's people, we would also more effectively disciple God's people and more effectively proclaim the gospel of hope to the world. The Advent season, historically, was designed to minister to the grace-implanted and grace-nurtured heart of every Christian, a heart a heart which both which both rests in the joy of our Savior's victorious first advent, and yet a heart which is also restless in the anticipation of our, sec- our Savior's second advent to receive us to Himself, that we might be with Him in a new heavens and a new earth. Both are in view. Oops. Good thing I don't need those. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks. Um, as we think about the, when we think about what Isaiah writes, um, it's a passage taken from uh, that I used this morning was taken from the liturgy of uh, of the Advent season for the first Lord's Day. And it's, it's as I think about it, I think what well, it's focusing on the the last days. Yes, it is, but we are living in the latter days. The church has always lived in the latter days. They've lived in the latter days since the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. We have received the revelation from God through Christ in the latter days. In these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son. These last days will culminate as we think about Christmas and and as we remember the birth of Christ, help us to turn our attention to the second advent and place our hope in the Savior who was born and died for us. Father, we ask you this in Christ's name. Amen.